0: Hello, my name is Oliver Kinner, And I'm Ian McAllister, and this is Brainwaves episode 123, bringing you the best in tabletop gaming news. These are the headlines for the week of the 12th of June, 2023. Upper Deck goes ravenous for a burger. Cardboard Edison awards are announced, and we speak to the winner. And a special report on UK Games Expo from our on-location reporter. All this and more on this episode of Brainwaves.
1: Let us start with a story of uh, one company suing another. We've got Upper Deck, the company behind the legendary series of deck builders, who are suing Ravensburger over their forthcoming Disney Lorcana game. Lorcana is a collectible card game due to come out very soon and was drawing big crowds at UK Games Expo. And yes, I saw that as well, actually, but more to that later. So in a post on the corporate page, Upper Deck president Jason Mashira said...
0: We invested significant time and resources to develop a new and novel trading card game. Our current leadership values the importance of protecting intellectual property of both Upper Deck and its licensors. We want gamers and fans to continue enjoying and having access to unique, innovative and immersive trading card games. We encourage competition in the industry, but also strongly believe in playing by the rules to ensure the gaming community benefits from the different creative choices by each manufacturer.
1: An individual called Paul Lesko on Twitter went through a breakdown of the suit and what was involved. Paul is a plaintiff's litigator. The suit has Upper Deck Company as the plaintiff and Ryan Miller and Ravensburger North America as defendants. The filing starts out like this.
0: Upper Deck seeks to protect its intellectual property from premeditated theft by Miller. On a work-for-hire basis, Upper Deck engaged Miller as lead game designer to develop a major proprietary trading card game for Upper Deck called Rush of Icor. After over a year of developing Rush of Icor, alongside Upper Deck, Miller terminated his contract with Upper Deck and, either before termination or just after, began working for Defendant Ravensburger, a direct competitor. At Ravensburger, Miller transported his work product on Rush of Icor, knowing such work product was solely owned by Upper Deck, into a trading card game called Disney Lorcana, or Lorcana as we'll be referred to in the rest of this. This trading card game has remarkable, uncanny similarities to Upper Deck's Rush of Icor. Miller's acts in pilfering the game design Upper Deck paid him to create and using those designs to develop a competing trading card game for a competitor were aided and encouraged by Ravensburger, who now seeks to profit from stolen intellectual property. These acts give rise to a host of causes of action under California federal law.
1: So obviously this is a lot of legal aids, but to translate it, we basically got Miller working for Upper Deck on a game. Then they left the company and took that design to Ravensburger, who allegedly made it into Lorcana. The suit goes on to detail the similarities between Lorcana, the Ravensburger game, and Rush of I-Corp, which is what Upper Deck is claiming Miller was working on originally, and lay out what it wants from the suit, which basically breaks down to not allowing Ravensburger to release Lorkana, payment for fees, restitution, return of the intellectual property. Paul goes on to say that he thinks the suit will rest on whether or not Upper Deck can prove that the design of Locana is a trade secret, or if it is too similar to other games in the genre. Paul believes that proving that it is a trade secret would be extremely difficult. The suit was formally filed on Wednesday, and Ravensburger have not responded since the filing. Well, first of all, thanks to Adam Richards from Punchboard for bringing this to our attention on the Discord Again, you know, it's, it's the usual thing. It's interesting to see that Apathek are saying Ravensburg are basically sort of enticed Miller over to bring the game with him and make it into Larkana. It's obviously a very serious alleg- uh, allegation in terms of the corporate world. And as a large company, or the huge company that Ravensburg is uh, in their own right, I can't see Disney wanting to have this game stopped in its tracks. So Disney will also have a very strong legal team to help out here and and try and bring the game through i mean generally speaking from a personal experience i think a lot of designers always say it is very hard to prove that their game was stolen by someone um so you know a lot of games are very similar so that's as we said that's what the whole case will rest on how can you prove how different or how unique this game is to any other similar games Um, that it's clearly one is the same as the other. So I don't
0: know. Yeah, there's a belief out there that you can't trademark mechanics. And certainly there's been several cases in the past where things like Magic a Gathering trying to um, copyright the word tap and and various other things like that that have sort of led credence to that belief. It's not entirely true. It's going to come down to sort of copyright and trademarks and that kind of thing. But let's face it, Ravensburger... Have got a license from Disney. Disney have got an extremely powerful legal team, yeah, as everyone knows. And I, and also, I believe, though I haven't seen the filing details myself, from the, report, the, the little bit of scuttlebutt we've seen on Twitter today, that the, let, let us say that the suit's being filed on Wednesday is that the actual suit won't be brought until sometime in November. And I think Disney Lorcana is coming out around about August, about, about sort of Gen Con time in the states. So the game's going to be out, out there. Yeah. It's it's going to be out there already. Certainly, trading. There's a load of trading card games out there. There have been like there was a big lot of trading card games around about the mid '90s, proving that that design, the Rush of Icor design, is absolutely unique. I think personally, think it's going to be very hard from what the little bit I know of Lorcana. Yeah, there's a lot of mechanics in there that I didn't recognize from different other different CCGs and TCGs over the years proving that it's absolutely unique, that's that's going to be difficult, I think. And like I say, Disney's legal team's behind them. It is going to be very yeah.
1: difficult. And, and just to clarify, we're recording on the 9th of June, Friday, the 9th of June, so Wednesday, would have been the 7th of June. Yeah. Just put it into context. But yeah, I think, yeah, you can't... Necessarily um, copy or or protect a specific mechanism. It'll be a combination of mechanisms. But I say, again, I don't think the game itself looks like it's so different to everything else that that applies here either. So that then goes back to like copyright and hate marks and things like that. But again, I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see and I guess let the courts sort it
0: out. Yeah, we'll bring you updates as we hear them for sure. Hello everyone, this is Ian from the editing suite. A couple of hours after we recorded the cast, Ravensburger had issued a new statement on the suit from Upper Deck. The statement comes from Ravensburger North America Senior Communications Director Lisa Kruger, and we saw it on ICV2. They said, The baseless claims filed this week are entirely without merit, and we look forward to proving this in due time. She continued, In the meantime, our focus continues to be on developing and launching a fantastic game in August. We'll bring you more on this story as it develops.
1: And taking, taking, talking more about designers and their games, I think we've got some
0: happy news, Ian. Yes, uh, this is a story we meant to actually put in the last cast because the folks behind this award reached out to us, but... I totally forgot, uh, so we're putting it in this one. But it did give us a time to secure an interview as well. Cardboard Edison, who, which is a site that helps out designers and has loads of great information on it about if you're a new designer, how, how to publish and all sorts of things. They've recently announced the winner of their award and the runners-ups of, their, uh, of that award. It's run by Chris and Suzanne Zinsley. The award recognises and promotes great unpublished game designs, and additionally, all participants and finalists especially receive in-depth and detailed feedback from the judges' panel. Submissions for the award go through two rounds of judging by a panel of over 50 people, being rated on engagement, originality of theme, and originality of mechanisms. And then finalists are additionally judged based on smoothness of play and fit for the target audience. This year's winner is Diatome by designer Sabrina Silva, in which players collect and place tiles to create mosaics. And Diatomes are sort of molecular thing that you can find out about. We're going to put links to that in our show notes. And what we managed to secure was an interview with Sabrina. And we'll let you have a listen to that interview. Now that was with myself. I'm delighted to be joined by Cardboard Edison winner, Sabrina Solba. How are you doing, Sabrina? Great. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your game Diatomes that won the award?
2: Sure. Uh, I'm a designer based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the US. I've been in games for a while, but only recently really in board games. Uh, Diatomes will be my second published board game. The first one that I'm publishing myself through my company, Little Liminal uh diatoms is a puzzly tile placement pattern making game where you take on the role of victorian naturalists collecting diatoms from water samples and arranging these single cell algae into mosaics on microscope slides which is a real thing that began in the early 1800s and peaked in victorian times but honestly has only ever been practiced by a very vanishingly small number of human beings
0: yeah i went and looked up a little bit about it and i I hadn't realized that people are doing that sort of thing at that sort of microscopic level at at that time in history. Fascinating.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Uh, So you mentioned this, your first board game. Have you uh, got experience in other game design?
2: Yeah, it's my second board game. I have a a game published uh, with my partner through Mindware, uh, Peaceful Kingdom. Uh, But I come from video games, so that's my... Oh, right,
0: okay. I know. What
2: sort of thing? All sorts. So I worked for 13 years at a company called Shell Games here in Pittsburgh and did a huge variety of projects from location based games to mobile to uh, MMOs. So, really, a huge diversity of different types of game and game like experiences.
0: Fantastic. So, what made you want to enter the Cardboard Edison Awards?
2: a few reasons. Uh, I'd seen the award finalists and the winners previously, and it, it always seemed like a really interesting mix of games. So I liked the caliber of the award and the applicants that it drew. I, I love that everyone who submits gets written feedback from the judges. Love, love that. So that for me was a draw. Um, I knew it would be a forcing function for me to do things like get a video pitch together, push towards a finalist rule book. So, it, you know, it's helpful to have those kinds of milestones, and then, you know, of course, if, if Diatoms were to be honored as a finalist, which was my main hope when I first submitted, it would mean that it would be listed permanently on the award webpage, and that would bring some attention to the game, which I already uh, was planning to kickstart sometime in the fall. So I thought that would draw more people to the game.
0: Fantastic. Well, can you talk, talk us through the process a little bit of like how the Cardboard Edison awards sort of go like from sort of initial like entering to the sort of coming up to the final?
2: Sure, so you submit at the end of January and um, you have to submit a pitch video and your full instructions. And then they select a group of finalists and those finalists will send in a working prototype. I believe the deadline was sometime in April. So you have a little bit of time and then uh, all the judges get together and they, they play the games and uh, then they decide on the, uh, the winners.
0: Fantastic. So what does winning the award mean for the future of Diatom's?
2: Well, it's definitely raised the profile of the game and gotten more people to check mm-hmm. it out, join my mailing list, sign up for the Kickstarter launch notification. Uh, it's also, of course, you know, really affirming for me as the designer and the publisher. The comments from the judges were really very positive. Of course, I already believed in the game and was excited to put it out for folks to play, but it's really lovely to have other designers and folks in industry speak highly of it and enjoy playing it. Um. yeah. So as, as a side note, the game that became Diatoms originally did not have a theme. It was an abstract game right. that I was calling at the time Fraxagon. And it was a, a serendipitous encounter with a sign at the Baltimore Aquarium that led me <laughs> to to Diatoms, which then through an internet rabbit hole led me to Diatom Mosaics. And and once I discovered that, the game really found itself. So, so now Diatoms and Diatom Mosaics are things I can geek out about. And I find myself i telling even casual strangers about these cool <laughs> microscopic life forms that come in all sorts of intricate, beautiful geometric shapes and can be found in every drop of water and that people actually make microscopic art out of because nature and people are amazing. And please just go <laughs> Google Diatom Mosaics and travel down this internet rabbit hole yourself. So I hope that the award also helps me achieve my, my now not so secret goal of starting a Diatom's fad.
0: yeah i mean they they are beautiful things and we'll put some links to all that in our show notes as well great Uh, would you have any advice for those looking to enter the uh, cardboard Edison awards in future years
2: go to the aquarium no (laughs) (laughs) i think you know make a make the game that you submit a unique game a game that that feels like it wouldn't have been made by many other people I think I think the award gravitates more towards games that are indulging in something new versus games that are just polished and well put together. And there's there's lots of different ways to make your game experience unique. So I think it's finding those elements for your game and and leaning into them that makes a game that's good for submission to this award. I, I would say aim for a two minute pitch video. I think you can submit a video that's as long as five minutes. Um, but I believe the submission instructions are literally like after five minutes, our judges are out. They're not required to keep watching.
0: Yeah, they're
2: basically like we no guarantees that your video is watched after five minutes. Yeah. And you know your video is not really about explaining the game fully. It's it's just you want just enough explanation with just enough personality to get someone watching it to be interested in playing the game. You want the judges to want your yeah. game prototype in the finalist pool so they can give it a go and and play it themselves
0: yeah it's just a trailer for your game really it's sort of like to get people excited and interested it's not like here's it's not like rodney smith how to play video or anything it's just
2: no just the highlights and and i i suggest you know going to a con before a convention Mm. before you know you you make your your video and and do get your like your pitch teach down the like the first couple minutes of teaching the game where you're still kind of enticing people to feel excited about the fact that they're going to spend their limited time at your table playing your game. And then once you have that practice spiel, that is the ba- a good basis for your, your video first draft.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time, Sabrina, and best of luck for Tomes in the future.
2: All right. Thank you so much.
0: find all about all the things that sabrina mentioned in that interview in our show notes We'll put links to all the things about diatomes and the game itself and her company and you can find out more about each game and what the judges thought on the cardboard edison website big congratulations to sabrina and all the runners up
1: yeah congratulations
0: I, I love the cardboard edison award it's a really interesting award it's all about unpublished games the games can't have been like uh, published in any way or form previously uh, Everyone gets feedback. and um, the board game workshop um run by Chris Anderson has a similar award. And Chris was my mentor in the tabletop manager program for the podcast. So hello Chris. Thanks very much for that. They just do a really good job of like promoting unpublished designers, promoting really interesting games. And a lot of the runners up as well, they tend to get like published at some point down the line because they're really interesting games. They've maybe not quite sort of crossed the finish line as far as the awards are concerned, but they're still really interesting games in their own right. So we do uh, recommend going and checking those out and keeping an eye out for those designers and games in the future.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I was a mentor or actually judge on the board game workshop uh, design uh, contest, oh, cool. contest. runs, And that's how I got in touch with people. But I think generally just, yeah, to promoting designers who are maybe new to the hobby or, or mm. just starting or, or generally just unpublished games is always good. And you get in touch with people like ourselves to review games. You get in touch with other designers. You know, it builds a whole community and, and hopefully eventually you sort of smooth the path. Path for these games to actually become published games as well. So it's great to see, and and it's great to see that process also being about feedback, not just about judging and winning. Yeah, actually, just taking part is sometimes actually really useful, just for design to sort of get almost a free free play test, but also get some constructive feedback on how the game works and how it fits and and everything else. So that's great to see, definitely.
0: Yeah, in in our interview, Sabrina said that was a really useful part of it, just getting that feedback, even if she hadn't won. Uh, uh, that uh, that feedback is invaluable. Yeah. And one of the other places you can go for that kind of feedback is UK Games Expo, which has a playtest area. But Oliver was there recently and he's got some news from the event.
1: Yes, I was there. So yeah, UK Games Expo is, as we probably know, the largest hobby games convention in the UK. And it took place recently from Friday the 2nd of June to Sunday the 4th. It's now in its 16th year and the event was back in Halls 1, 2 and 3 of the Birmingham NEC as well as uh, occupying some rooms in the nearby Hilton Hotel. Now we're still waiting official figures of visitors and things but I saw a post from Andy Kybert, the founder of WinterCon which is an annual Comic-Con style event here in Eastbourne where I live and I posted on LinkedIn in that... Uh, He was told that this year there were over 32,000 unique visitors with a total attendance of over 52,000. So just to clarify, the attendance is the number of people entering the show each day. So if a person attends all three days, they count for three of that attendance figure, whereas the unique visitors is obviously unique people. So yeah, we'll have to wait until we get the actual official figures. But I think it already looks quite amazing um, because both on Friday and Saturday of the event... We had train strikes in the UK, and the NEC is very easily reached by train, also by car, um, but other public transport isn't really that easy to get there. So seeing large numbers despite those strikes is amazing. Now, as I, as I said, I was there for all three days, and even though the Friday and Sunday felt about as busy as they have been in previous years, Saturday certainly felt a huge amount busier than, than I, I'm used to anyway. And again, that's great to see. So it is a trade event as much as a consumer show. So there was a Thursday night press evening where press and publishers talked to exhibitors before the first day of the show opening on Friday. And then on the Friday evening, there was a designer-publisher speed dating event and then a chance to network as well. And of course, at the same time, the show saw a the general public enjoying demos and buying games, accessories and other products for sale. So... That leaves me really just to say the next year's date. So if you do want to come next year and I'll be there and I think Ian as well.
0: Um, yeah, I'm booked into a hotel already. I will definitely be back to Games Expo next year. Um, so yeah, so
1: write down the dates. Friday the 31st of May until Sunday the 2nd of June
0: 2024. So yeah, hope to see you there. Entirely possible. The entire Brainwave team will be there. So yeah. Yeah. Should be good. Exciting. Really exciting. So yeah, as I say, generally
1: saying seeing those figures is amazing. and just... Being there felt amazing. I say the Sunday, Saturday especially, the Saturday is is usually a busier day anyway. Friday tends to be more sort business to business. Sunday tends to tell off because it's a shorter day anyway for the show. But the Saturday was so busy, I I basically took my lunch break. I was demoing there for D all day, but I had a one-hour lunch break. So I walked around and just getting through the crowds was quite hard, which isn't normal. So and that's both halls one and two that I went through. So it, it was really good, and I tried to catch up with the people. Obviously, are busy demoing to to visitors, which was great. Um. So yeah, amazing, and um, yeah, I can't wait to go and get next year. It's it's to me, it's about the evenings as well, the sort of socialising yeah. afterwards. So if you're around, keep an eye out. We might be either in the halls at one of the open gaming tables, or maybe decamp to the Hilton. But well, I found the Open gaming there is really, really busy. We, we didn't get a table, so we'll have to organize something, but it'd be nice to to see you there and spend some time in the evenings. But next year, I'm playing not a demo, I want to have some time walking around. So hopefully, we bump into each other at some point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Expo, bring back the beer bus. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but Games Expo did not go off without in controversy entirely. WH uh, Arthur at Aral Ether on Twitter, posted this on the 6th of June.
1: For UKGE, I offered to run RPGs by queer creators. Dreamers' Q by Avery Older and Sleepaway by J. Dragon. Dreamers' Q was rejected because the organizer didn't want themes of sexuality or orientation. And reference to queerness was removed from Sleepaway's event description.
0: This understandably upset some who thought that Expo was censoring games based on the content. It took Games Expo a day to get a response together. They said this in a series of tweets posted on the 7th of June.
1: It has been brought to attention that two errors were made in run-up to this year's UKGE. Firstly, an RPG scenario was rejected prior to this year's show due to subject theme of sexual orientation. Secondly, new GMs did not receive their volunteer orientation training. On the first matter, we have reviewed the email chain between the RPG manager and the individual submitting the game and have found that this is true. UKGE does not accept scenarios containing sexual content due to the past experience of this type of content causing distress and upset to players. However, this does not extend to sexual orientation. The volunteer made an error of judgment in conflating the two and UKGE offers our unreserved apologies to the GM. It is not our policy to censor based on sexual orientation, and we failed the GM by rejecting the scenario and the volunteer by not giving sufficient support and advice. The volunteer was oversensitive to an incident that occurred in 2019 and stepped over a line. We have always tried to be an inclusive and diverse convention, welcoming all. Sometimes we make mistakes, and this was one such time.
0: They conclude this thread by talking about the administrative error that led to the volunteer orientation training not happening and what they would do to correct that. It is signed by Richard Denning, one of the organizers. Now, Expo definitely made a mistake here, but they've apologized and they are taking steps to correct that error for the future. I'd just like to address that there were many who wrote Expo off immediately. As soon as this tweet went out from the the original author, they just wrote Expo off immediately, not allowing them to respond. and I i have a problem with that i i I mean i hope when those people make mistakes as they're going to inevitably do because they're human beings that those around them are more forgiving than they are towards expo expo overreacted obviously there there was an incident in 2019 which we reported on where if i remember i'm remembering a little bit hazily but basically what happened was during a game during an rpg game at the expo a sort of situation of sort of sexual assault was dropped on the players and was received incredibly badly obviously because it was completely unexpected and expo had issues with that gm and and kicking them out and all sorts of sort of controversy around that so i can understand expo being a little sensitive to these issues they've admitted they've made a mistake that they've crossed a line there and that they will not do that in the future but give companies a little chance and especially conventions, a little chance to like apologize and get themselves together and issue an apology or or address things. Sure, if they double down, then fair enough, go at them. But just give people a little bit of a chance to apologize. These aren't gigantic corporations. They're run by a very small team of volunteers. Expo's run by a very small team and a lot of volunteers. And there's going to be some miscommunication there. Not everything's going to be perfect they have apologized they're going to address it in the future just give people a little bit of a chance to actually address issues before you jump down the throats
1: absolutely and and as we said there was not just a controversy a uh, AGM got banned i think permanently yes. from from RPG circles everywhere and it was a completely inappropriate, um, you know, scenario that was set up. But anyway, that that's that's the past. And yes, of course, of that, you know, I think if I was in the same situation, I might hastily read that and just see sexuality, not look, thinking about orientation or anything like that, and and immediately sort of probably panic. Uh, and as yeah. we, you know, as as the response says, that you know, there should have probably been more discussion between the GM and UKGE and and make sure it's dealt yeah. with appropriately. But these things happen. They, as I said, they they held up their hands. They apologized. Um, obviously, there is not much you yeah. can do. In, in hindsight, afterwards, but going forward, they're obviously doing their best to to improve things. And yeah, as we said, don't just jump at people's throats because give them a chance to respond. And then, yeah, if if they didn't offer the right response, then yeah, go go for it absolutely. But
0: let's wait. Yeah, we'd be the first podcast to call UKGE out if they were doing like if they were doubling down on this. We would absolutely report on that. No. But in in this case, I think the response is pretty measured and, and good. And hopefully these kind of things won't happen in the future. But we will report on them if they do. We will. And that leads us nicely
1: to the updates. Back in episode 84, we brought you the news that workers at Paizo Publishing, creators of the Pathfinder RPG, had formed a union. United Paizo Workers has just voted to ratify their first contract with PISO. The account on Twitter said,
0: Along with raises across the board, preserved and expanded benefits, and enhanced protections for workers, this contract provides a framework for continued collaboration between union labour and management to everyone's benefit.
1: Thanks to Corey from Discord bring, for bringing this to our attention. And of course, congratulations to the union for pushing for better contracts for their members. It's great to see that this is happening and it's great to see that it's actually making a difference, so it's great that we had this update on this this piece as well, and I hope yeah they they've be doing more work in that way going forward, and that we find other unions forming in other places where they are
0: needed. Yeah, we've seen a bunch of union pushes in in the states over the last couple of years in tabletop gaming, and it's great to see because yeah, absolutely unionize, get 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 help for the the issues you need at work please please form a union. We support you all the way. Now, on to the news. Greg Isabelli, the founder of Board Game Arena, or BGA as it's more commonly known, a web-based platform to play board games online, announced on the 2nd of June 2023 in a blog post that they were leaving. Greg had the idea of launching the platform 13 years ago and decided that now... It
1: is time for me to leave and let BGA
0: stand on its own feet. BGA was acquired by Asmodee in February 2021, as we reported in episode 67 of the cast. Since then, BGA did what was necessary to allow the company to transition to new management. As part of this plan, Greg had a free hand to recruit a team of 10 people to manage BGA and work on improving it. Then in January of this year, Alexander Schlecht started managing the company, and three months later in April, Emmanuel Collin, co-founder of Game Arena, left. Greg Isabelli's departure completes the transition. Speaking about the reasons for his departure, Greg Isabelli says that Asmodee is definitely not one of them.
1: I've been very clear from the start with Asmodee. BGA buyout was part of a transition strategy to a new team to make it sustainable over time. They accepted and
0: supported that all along the way. Talking about the future of BGA, Greg Isabelli says that price increases are unavoidable.
1: The historic prices we used to have were too low. The catch-up that has been done these last two years was welcome. Among other considerations, something that everyone should keep in mind is that the BGA revenues are shared with premium games publishers as royalties. Significant royalties means more money to create new future games, but also make it more probable to have them on BGA.
0: Talking about his personal plans, Greg Isbelli says that... I'm
1: lucky enough to be able to focus on non-profit projects. I've always found fascinating the possibility of using technology to make new kinds of social interactions possible. A specific social organization is not going very well at the moment. A specific social organization is not going very well at the moment. Representative democracy.
0: Now, it was on the cards that the current management would leave and a new team be put in place. So it's no surprise that this has now happened. I mean, we'll keep an eye on how BGA develops in the future. We talked to them about the transition around about the time that Asmodee was acquiring them, and it does sound like we'll see some price rises. I mean, that's kind of inevitable. I still think BGA is a fantastic bit of value for money. I, I I pay for it, so I've got access to all the premium content. It, it's really good. I play a bunch of games in there. though less over the last couple of months because I've been quite busy, but. Yeah, I, I really, really like BGN. and it's offered. it's, it's a, a good interface and a an interesting way to play a bunch of games I might normally not get to try. So yeah. Definitely. And I uh, keep keep
1: adding new games all the time. And yeah. there's a huge list already on there. And yeah, I, I haven't paid for it myself, but a friend of mine has. So when we have like online board game night, we play on there a lot. So it yeah. is is a great platform. So we'll just have to keep an eye and see see whether it's gonna be be a bit too commercial, maybe. <laughs> we'll have to yeah. wait for what the price rises actually look like.
0: Indeed. But Oliver, some news about folk leaving.
1: Yeah, someone else is leaving. This time it is Zev Schlazinger, who has announced his departure from WizKids, which he moved to after leaving Z-Man Games, the company he helped found. Justin Ziran, president of WizKids, said,
0: I would like to share my heartfelt thanks to Zev for an amazing seven years of service. I look forward to future collaborations with Zev should our paths cross, and I sincerely hope they do. The
1: decision is mutual and amicable, according to ICV2. Zev set off the departure.
0: As with all good campaign settings and games, I look forward to my next adventures in the hobby game industry.
1: Well, thanks to Hal Duncan for posting this on our Discord. I don't think we have much more to add. It's just someone yeah. leaving another company. That's
0: sort of natural yeah. progression. I hope all the best for the future, Zev, and uh, I'm sure he'll find a new home as he has before. I think so. Speaking of partnerships, Ian. Yeah, on the last cast, we reported on the firing of folk at Steamforge Games and the announcement that Steamforge had signed an exclusivity deal with Kickstarter, making Kickstarter the only place where you'll be able to back games from Steamforge Games. Following that announcement, 11 days later, GameFound, which is a rival uh, crowdfunding platform, announced similar deals with the following Archon Studio, who make the Heroes of Might and Magic 3 board game, Corvus Belli, who make the Infinity Miniatures game, FlatOut Games, who make Cascadia and Calico. Geek & who make a range of gaming tables. Open Owl Studios, who make Stars of Kureus, Stone Saga and Mythwind. And Van Ryder Games, who make Final Girl and Hostage Negotiator. These studios will now fund exclusively through the GameFound platform. GameFound said this about the partnership.
1: We've been developing the platform for years now, building a platform for the gaming community and by the gaming community, Aim to bring solutions not just to crowdfunding and pledge management, but specifically to the tabletop community's needs. Working directly with many of these creators over the years, we've always been able to build a better solution and ensure that the creator's voice and needs are an important part of GameFound's continued growth and development. With these partnerships, we are making sure that this vision continues.
0: So an interesting announcement from GameFound. As with the Kickstarter Forge collaboration, I can totally see what's in it for GameFound. I don't quite see what it's in for the game publishers, but presumably they're getting some discount on fees that GameFound would normally charge to them. Um, less of a cut goes to GameFound, more of it goes to the companies. I can only assume that's what's happening behind the scenes. And uh, I, I guess we might see a backer kit announce something similar quite soon.
1: Yeah, keep an eye out for that. Yeah, the, the only reason as well I can see is that the, the fees are lower for them they have struck a deal somewhere in some shape or form and with prices going up at the moment i think it's great if companies can strike those deals and make the games sort of prices stay the same but you know sort of basically yeah. costs to pay for other things for increase somewhere else
0: but it's pride month oliver and but that sort of news doesn't seem to have got through to the BattleTech mods
1: no, unfortunately not. As reported on Dicebreaker, moderators of the r/BattleTech Reddit found themselves nuked from orbit due to their response to LGBTQ plus content being published on the forum. Many members of the Reddit had posted about the BattleTech Pride Anthology fanzine and found their posts deleted or otherwise removed without warning. When pressed for explanation, moderator u Severin cited a rule that said posts will not discuss.
0: The real world politics or current events in this subreddit.
1: The moderator also said that it fell foul of their 1988 policy, which uses the year 1988 as a measure of the relevance of any posts. As many pointed out, Pride events have been happening well before that date, and also that Catalyst Games Labs, the publishers of Battletech, had posted about the anthology. Community and marketing director for Catalyst Game Lab
0: Rem Alternus posted. The need for a safe space on Reddit was brought to my attention today. While Reddit was far down on my list to get to, I feel that our community had an urgent need for our presence and our support. Let me be clear. Battletech is for everyone, and everyone is spelt in capital letters.
1: So the backlash from the community brought original mod DDevil63 out of retirement to nuke the whole mod team, as the zine creator put it. They said,
0: Hello, our Battletech community. I originally created our Battletech 15 years ago because I wanted a place to talk about Battletech on Reddit. I've not been active as a moderator or contributor, but I regularly read posts and comments. Yesterday was when I became aware of the removal of the Pride Anthology post and the rightfully deserved backlash. I have no moderation or community management experience, but I'm trying my best to right any wrongs. Effective immediately, rule number one of our Battletech mirrors rule number one of our official Battletech. Battletech is for everybody. The previous rule, all posts must be Battletech related, and its 1988 stipulation have been removed. The current moderation team has been removed. I ask that you please be respectful to them. I sincerely hope they remain a part of this community.
1: The Battletech Pride anthology is available for free to download on itch.io. So, this gaming is for everyone, and um, then obviously. Yeah, similar than that. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of things and I was reading the story and a lot of things don't seem make sense to me. So if anyone can point out to me why there is this 1988 or there was this 1988 policy and what this thing is about real world politics or current events. Um, I mean, I looked at the Reddit. Do people literally just post about their painted minis? Is that all this is about? I'm, I just, yeah, I quite didn't quite get it. And I certainly didn't understand the sort of... Yeah, Do The
0: 1988 stipulation see, uh, seems absolutely strange. We, we, we've we had a look. We can't see anything significant. Dates in 1988 about, about Battletech. So yeah, Battletech seems to have been released easier. in 1984. Yeah, um, The Reddit has
1: been going for 15 years, so that doesn't add up. So, yeah, I don't know. It's obviously bizarre, and, well, it's, I'm glad that someone stepped in and tried to right those wrongs and, and allow yeah. literally everyone to enjoy their... Miniatures and make them look however they want them to look, and and promote the whole world in their own fanzine the way
0: they want to see it. So, yes. absolutely, yeah, it gets the doors that way. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Don't let it hit you on the way out. Yeah. we'd just like to take a moment to remind you about the Tabletop Jobs Facebook group where you can go and look at uh, different jobs across the world in tabletop gaming mostly it's US but there are some UK jobs in there and there's also a little event that Oliver's found that's the LGBTQ plus board games afternoon that is happening in the community centre at 60 to 62 Hopton Street at Thames Path Bankside London it's a chance to spend a chilled Sunday afternoon playing popular board games with other LGBTQ plus folks in a relaxed environment some games will be provided by organisers, but you're welcome to bring along your own. Donations will go towards supporting the London LGBTQ+ Community Centre. So yeah, get yourself along there if you're in the area. And just want to draw your attention to a little piece that Scott from Minerva Games brought to our attention. It's about how Games Workshop have just away from satire a little bit in their recent sort of releases and over the last few years, and in doing so have made space in that hobby for the extreme right wing. It's a, it's a Fairly interesting read. Uh, We'd just like to draw your attention to it, that it's out there. Go and give that a look.
1: Well, that leaves us time to shout out to our lovely Patreon supporters. James Naylor from Naylor Games, Sean Newman, who I saw at UKG. hello, from the GameLot team. If you want to become a patron, then you can join us at patreon.com slash thegiantbrain. You can also support us in other ways. There's a page on giantbrain.co.uk slash support hyphen us hyphen new. There's also obviously still the metallic dice games promo code that you can use roll with brains or one word or one uh, uppercase that gives you a little discount and gives us a little cut off anything that's sold that way. And finally, if you want to grab yourself some swag from the Sir Meeple shop as well, sirmeeple.com, but of course all the links are in the description or on the site. Now, we want to end on a light story, as we always do. And we've got something uh, light in the sense of well, these, these are Warhammer stamps. So if you want to show your loyalty to the Emperor, why not send him a lovely note with a Warhammer stamp on it? The stamps are available in all sorts of formats there are framed ones in collectors and presentation packs and in various other limited edition forms. So much you can actually put on mail. The stamps show images from across the Games Workshop's catalogue, from the original Rogue Trader to more recent titles like Age of Sigma, all available from the Royal Mail Store or eBay, where friend of the show Richard from We Wizards has been responsible for listing them. And I'm, I'm a bit of a stamp collector myself, so I had a quick right, look. Okay. And yes, there are like first-day covers, there's first-day envelopes, so the, the first-day covers tend to be the things that people want, with stamps on there. There's full sheets, which is always nice, including the borders. And yeah, the, the prices are quite nice. You know, So you can start quite low, just get yourself a nice stamp, or get a fan sheet which is £7.50, apparently, and yeah, presentation packs. It's all there for, for any anyone and everyone. Nice to see.
0: Fantastic. And do let us know what gaming stamps you would most like to see. I mean, a Catan one would seem nice, you know, to celebrate Klaus, Klaus Teuber. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, a game that has like seeped its way into sort of. Model, uh, like the sort of family games and like the sort of games you might have in your in your house besides Cluedo Monopoly that kind of thing
1: and also if you to uh, get in touch with us and send us a letter use one of these stamps as well We yeah like...
0: absolutely so thanks very much for listening everyone if you like what you listen to then the best way to help us out as ever is to just share the podcast and drop us a review and rating on your podcast host of choice you can also follow oliver at the tabletopgamesblog.com you can join our Discord, there'll be an invite in the show notes. Our Twitter is at the giant brain. We're on Instagram as Giant Brain UK. Our Facebook page is the Giant Brain. Uh, all our posts and everything go on thegiantbrain.co.uk, and you can email us about anything in the show or any bits of news you'd like us to cover. Or if you just want to contact us anonymously about anything as well, then it's giant at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with more tabletop news. Bye for now. See you then. Bye.